Hi, friends. Welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. I'm excited to share today's interview with Jenny Edwards Bertrand. Jenny is a wife, mother, pastor, advocate, church planter, mentor, and all around bright light in our denomination. In this episode, she talks about growing up in a United Methodist congregation in Arcola, Illinois, and how that space shaped her to be the person she is today. We talk about a lot of things, United Methodist, including the special session of General Conference in 2019 and its impact on her congregation. And we spend a little bit of time hearing the backstory of her relationship with Isaac Simmons, whose drag persona, Miss Pentecost, has received a lot of attention in the last few months. The thing is, y'all, Jenny sees people, whether it's Latinos living in a rural Midwestern town or a college student desperate for community, she sees people for who they are and serves them on their terms. There's so much to learn in this episode. Now, one technical note, I'm still learning how to do this podcasting thing. And in this episode, which was actually our second attempt, you might hear some static every now and then. I want to invite you to not be distracted by it, though, because Jenny's story is incredible. So I'm going to keep working on getting better at recording, but you go grab that notebook and a choice beverage because I know you're going to enjoy this interview with Jenny Edwards Bertrand. Hey, Jenny, how you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Derek? I'm so happy to see you. I'm happy to see you and would just be really open and honest. We've already recorded this one time and it didn't work out as well on our end, on my <laughs> end. Um, and so we're trying it again. And that means I get to see you twice in one week. Right, right. And we get to talk about really cool, great things. Um, so I'm really grateful that you were willing to join me on Bar of the Conference. Um I just remember meeting you. Um, we discovered that it was uh, uh, the October. Oh gosh, I don't even know what year it was now, actually. But it was in New York. We met in New York. It was um, 2013. Okay, October. So I yeah. almost we've almost been friends a decade. Gosh, wow! Um, I've <laughs> always found you to be a person of incredible gifting and uh, and a willingness to, to, to be in tough spaces, to not, and I, it's almost weird. Like I'm, I almost feel like you are like fearless in like really tough spaces, which, you know, outside, you know, outside perspective, uh, you know, no clue what's happening on the inside, but I've always loved that about you and just the, the ministry you're doing and the legacy that you are really creating. Um, but what I learned from you when we did this the first time <laughs> is 
is how much of who you are, at least in my mind, starts with like the people you come from, like your family. So I'd love for you yeah. just as we start out, like tell us God's provenient grace that got you into the United Methodist Church, um, which I think is a story about your family. I think you're really right. And I, it's only been in recent years that I've pieced together the importance of the story of my family. Um, my grandparents, so it, they're of that World War II greatest generation um, era, both grandpa, POW, other grandpa served in the war. They, um, they didn't go to church. At that time where we say that, quote unquote, everyone went to church, one set of grandparents dropped kids off at Sunday school. Other set of grandparents um, tried to go to church and didn't feel welcomed. They were and they tried United Methodist churches or Methodist Episcopal churches, and they um, they were blue collar workers and just felt like they didn't fit in. It was to elitist and wealthy. And this is a time when those particular congregations would have said, oh, we, we welcome all. And that was our heyday when our sanctuaries were packed. My grandparents didn't go to church at that time. So I didn't grow up with this, like grandma sending me scriptures or of everyone, quote, everyone, of course, knew hymns. I grew up... Um, with that generation, I, I probably knew more about scripture because I did go to church. And you want to hear how I ended up in church? Yeah, yeah. let's do it. So um, my parents were, uh, they lived in one community. They were renting a house. The house sold and they had to find a house immediately. There was a small town about 20 miles north of them that had a house for sale with immediate occupancy. They that was 1973. They still live in that starter ranch home. Awesome. <laughs> it was starter to like empty nest home, retirement. Wow. Yeah. It's a little tiny ranch house and they um that's where I was raised. My parents as young adults in this community in their young 20s, two kids, um my dad met the Methodist pastor and he invited them to church, an invitation. My parents joined the church and um, my dad, my one-year-old sister and me as a three-year-old were baptized on the same day. Wow. So over the years of growing up and we went every Sunday, then I was involved. I grew up churched. I was involved in all the things. But I would hear my parents reflect on things that happened in worship that they had to learn. Like, what's this crazy? I like it felt if you didn't grow up singing a doxology or Gloria Patre or saying the Lord's Prayer, all of that's new. And it's not that they didn't like it. They they learned it, but it wasn't a given that oh, this all makes sense. And it's, of course, what we do. So I just heard those questions growing up. And the church structure was so confusing to them. 
the committees and uh, all of that was so confusing to them, but it wasn't long before they were both in all of those committees and doing all the things that I just learned about church through the eyes of people new to church. Yeah, and I, I recall you even telling me about a set of grandparents who, um, they didn't feel welcome in church spaces. Yes, they did not. My grandpa um, was, uh, well, I don't know what he did before, but he worked all blue collar jobs. And by the time I was alive, he was a, um, <laughs> he was, uh, what do you call it? The bu spraying for bugs. What do you uh, call those people? Uh, pest control. Pest or, control, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the university, but in the 70s and 80s, which I'm guessing there was less um, control over what was in those chemicals. And surprise, surprise, he died of cancer oh, when I was. A, thank you. He's a great guy. Um, he died of cancer when I was a teenager. And he, even to the very end, he would have described himself as spiritual but not religious before mm. that term was a thing. Everybody. Yeah. yeah. And um, he wrote letters to people in his last year of life, but he never went to church. His wife, my grandma was then a widow in her early sixties and he was the love of her life. She never remarried. She missed him till the end. She lived another 30 some years. Um, and in her eighties, she was welcomed, invited to a Methodist church. She came to faith, if you will, though I don't know if she would say it quite that way, but she came to faith in her 80s. And she became one of like the old ladies in the church that stuffed the bulletin and, and did all of that. Um, and maybe from the outside, you would have thought, oh, she's been here her whole life, but she was an unchurched, new to church in her 80s. And I still love the pastor who invited her. Wow. Yeah. You were telling me about some of the formative experiences that you had um, as a little girl yeah. in, in your local church. What city or town in, in Illinois was it? <laughs> it is called Arcola, Illinois. Amazing Arcola. I don't think I said <laughs> it before. I would have gone on a whole... Uh, uh, the conversation about that. One thing I can say, so it's a town of 2,700, mm -hmm. but I didn't tell you this before, Derek, but um, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, all tiny ranch homes, it was prime, mm, it was about 50-50 then, and now it's almost all Hispanic immigrants. And so even though I was in a small town, I grew up with diversity as a child, and my community also has an old order Amish community. So Whoa. it's like clip clop, clip clop, hola, hola, and <laughs> uh, and then rednecks. So wow. like uh, that—that's my hometown. It's also the corporate headquarters and where all of 
um, Libman brooms and mops are made. Okay, now. Okay. Yeah. And it was early, because we're the broom corn capital of the world. So early on, um, there was a need for more factory workers, and there were some founding, not founding, some uh, town fathers kind of guys who went to Mexico, like vacationed in Mexico, and <laughs> recruited labor from Mexico to move to the town. And so it's this small town in Mexico where was the primary source of people immigrating to the United States via this tiny town in the middle of Illinois to work at Libman's and another um, broom shop. Wow. Isn't that crazy? I haven't even told you that. I didn't. But so that leads me to a new question. Yeah. Tell me then about that local church you were a part of that um, made space for your family. Yes. And their ministry to the people in Arcola. <laughs> you got it. Um, so I, my parents are from a large university town. Most people in the small town hadn't lived outside that small town. So my mom and dad were more open, like they encouraged us, you know, like I hung out at the Liel family a lot and got to experience authentic Mexican cuisine from Mama Liel, who, where only Spanish was spoken there. So my parents encouraged us to be a part of things. The same was true at the church we were encouraged to be a part of everything. And um, at that church, I just learned love. That is what it taught. It wasn't because uh, some theological textbook or some crazy seminary professor or whatever. They showed love. And I think I told you the story that um, <laughs> we had. Uh, so Worship was at one hour. I want then, this story. Okay, this is the okay. story I want. Yes. All right. So worship was at one hour. And then before Sunday school happened, there was a fellowship time that lasted 30 to 40 minutes if you were late to Sunday school. <laughs> and it wasn't just donuts. It was like a full spread. And you people were competitive to sign up to be in charge of this time. And I think I told you this, <laughs> trying to acknowledge it as a time of like, you've had a spiritual high in worship. They named this fellowship hour Afterglow. <laughs> let's keep moving. Yeah, let's keep moving. It wasn't until the Gen X pastor got there and he was like, let's rename this. Well, you know, I just think it's time for a refresh. So um, in this fellowship hour on the third Sundays, the United Methodist men were in charge of the food. They would drive to a neighboring town that had an incredible donut shop. And one of the men, Harry Keel, learned that I loved cream-filled donuts. And they, of course, didn't buy a lot of cream-filled donuts. It was the basic donuts. But he would get one for me. And he would tap me on the shoulder when I was a little kid and take me into that United Methodist Church kitchen and give that to me. And I have a feeling, I mean, I felt special, but I have a feeling that probably happened to lots of people. 
And there was just a way of making people feel welcomed and included in a radical hospitality kind of way. Mm. And one of the things that I, I've observed about you, Jenny, is I often feel like you are the lone progressive in conservative spaces. <laughs> but what what is sort of that thought has kind of shifted for me now because I heard more of your story. And 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 it seems to me that it isn't, and this might even be a, a good apology right here. <laughs> you are who you are, not because you are a progressive Christian, progressive United Methodist pastor. You are who you are because of what your local church taught you yeah. about what it means to be the church. Yeah. In a small town in the middle of rural Illinois, surrounded by Amish farms. I worked at a restaurant called the Dutch Kitchen where we served Amish style cooking. I mean, that's my roots. I detasseled corn and walked beans as a kid. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Remember a few years ago, it was four years ago this week, when I said uh, there are, there turns out there are gay kids in the cornfields too. And that was misperceived that I was saying something. I meant, no, literally we're surrounded by cornfields and um, there are LGBTQ people in rural America as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what um, I meant. I love it. I forgot that everyone doesn't look out their bedroom window and see cornfields. Corn fields, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't hear. I'm in Bloomington, Illinois now. I don't hear, but definitely do in my home. In my Arcola, home. for sure. Yeah, yeah. So. Let's move a little further along this journey because <laughs> little Jenny is in this United Methodist congregation that is just loving people and yeah. receiving people and holding space for them. And it's not enough that you're a part of this congregation. You, you get your call to ministry. Um, tell us a little bit about how you were called into ministry. Well, I was sure throughout my childhood I was supposed to do something. There is very little model for um, women in ministry at the time. And um, I've learned that this is a really common thing. But the only woman I that this is talking little, little like preschool, kindergarten. So little. The only model was Mary. And he birthed she birthed Jesus. And we'd heard about the second coming. And so in my tiny mind, I think I experienced a call to ministry because I thought, oh, I wonder if that's how Jesus will come back. Someone will be asked to birth them, just like in the Bible that we study every Christmas. And so I wondered if that was to be me, which I realized sounds really egotistical, but it in the innocence of a child and a lot of women in ministry had this experience, it was like the only female model we had at that time. This is in the seventies. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I, but then one of my parents, best friends, um, the 
the mom in that family answered a call to ministry. So in like second grade, I saw a woman go into ministry. So I think it was always percolating in there. By the time I got into senior high, there was a trip that my church sponsored every year. And I don't, I didn't know the structure of the church at the time, but which of our general agencies is in New York or was in New York? Uh, so uh, Glo uh, Church it and Society is in New York. And I think Global Ministries might have been in New York at one point too. I'm not sure. At the time, it might have been Global Ministries. Okay. But there was this trip. It was called a cultural immersion trip, not a mission trip. The purpose of it was to learn. And so these kids from the small town were invited into New York City. We're talking in the 80s, prostitutes and drugs everywhere. It had not been Disney-fied yet. Times Square was still a place to get cocaine easily. And maybe it still is, but it's not quite as obvious. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were invited there to study hunger and homelessness. So we had both seminars where we studied the systemic reasons for that. And then we also went and in the course of that seminar, went into um, food pantries and homeless shelters all over the city and got to hear the stories of people there. So it was both some like theoretical learning mixed with meeting people. I have to think that that has influenced the way that I see our um, call as Christians, that kind of Matthew 25 call. Oh, absolutely. I can't yeah. imagine how it couldn't. Um, yeah. Those form, and we know this because of campus ministry, those yeah. formative experiences that mm -hmm. don't so much get like, they don't so much land as much as they stay with you. Yeah. And inform who you are yes. uh, as you're yes. going into adulthood. Wow. Yes. So from the 70s and 80s, I learned be loving to everyone in a town that had some blatant racism to both Amish people and Hispanic people. My parents said mm. not an option. And in fact, I didn't tell you this before. My dad was a CPA and he, two things with that, he would accept all different clients. He knew how how to do um, farmer taxes, which are more complicated. And so he had literally a hitching post in for his office, for his Amish clients. And then um, for his Hispanic clients, and of course those taxes are more complicated as well, depending on where a person is in their immigration process. Um, he was often explaining tax law through a grade schooler translating English to Spanish. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. And that's just what I saw as normal growing up. Cause you know, whatever your parents. So yeah. they were perfect parents, but they role modeled um, loving everyone to me. And then my church did too. And then my church preached love. So I, this to me is just obvious, like the obvious way to be. Mm -hmm. tell, tell us more. We were talking, because I'm trying to get a sense of what, what Illinois 
North Central, the Midwest United Methodist world is. And you were telling <laughs> me about the merger between the Central Illinois Conference and the Southern Illinois Conference. Yeah. And I, tell us, tell me a little bit more about that. And and because I think that that actually plays into, again, this formation of yes. the person you are today. Well, I was um, raised and went through the candidacy process in former Central Illinois. And the mentors I had in former Central Illinois at church camp, at youth rallies, and in my churches were more of this um, social piety or um, personal piety and social holiness, like in balance. What I've learned in honestly, more recent years is that Southern Illinois and the DNA of that conference was more of the um, personal holiness as most important. And, and if you did some other things, fine, but it wasn't that connection of the two. And you, you know, you had to say the date you were saved and it, it was just a different DNA. I will be honest, though, the reason the two conferences merged is because at the time, this wouldn't be true now, but at the time, the churches in Southern Illinois um, uh, couldn't sustain a conference financially. Hmm. So whereas Central Illinois could have sustained that. So it was a justice issue hmm. for us to merge conferences. And it was sold as such to the central Illinois clergy that felt nervous about merging a more centrist conference with a, a more conservative conference. And certainly that has, the complications of that have, are, are playing themselves out right now. I bet, I bet. And if you think about a map like, um, Southern Illinois, like if you draw that line, I'm, I have a map on my wall right now, um, where Iowa is and where Missouri are, that it's almost a straight line. If you do that line across Illinois, it kind of cuts the state in half. And the bottom half of Illinois is connected to Kentucky, Tennessee, and Southern Missouri and Southern Indiana. Um, so more Bible belty kind of places, whereas central and I mean, obviously Northern Illinois, Chicago. Right. right. Um, but central and up is more connected to um, Iowa and up to Wisconsin and, uh, and Chicago. I mean, it's influenced by Chicago too. So it's in this context that you eventually <laughs> go into campus ministry, which is the, the I met you on the tail end of your campus ministry yeah. career, but tell us again, um, tell me again. <laughs> yeah. How campus ministry. Um, well, I was a good Methodist life. student. So I joined the campus ministry that I eventually led when I was in college. And it was connected to a church. I wasn't part of the church. I was in the campus ministry. But one summer, that church needed a female um, counselor to go on a mission trip. They'd had an adult female back out. And for their ratios, safe sanctuaries, they needed a female. This is in 1993. 
And the associate pastor at the church asked the campus minister and my shoulders tapped. I had decided I was not going into ministry. No way, Mm -hmm. no how. I go on this trip and in the middle of the trip, they wait till I love all these students. And then they say, oh, by the way, we're hiring a 10 hour a week uh, youth director. We want the kids say we want you to apply. That's just that's just mean, Derek. After I already loved them. And then the rest is history. Like once I started working in the church, I've never stopped. That was 30 years ago. Oh, come on now. I mean, it was an effective strategy, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) Might have been a little little manipulative, but it was definitely effective. It was Um, effective. And, you know, in that very first youth group, I had a kid that came out. Mm -hmm. And that's in 1993. And again, my naivete... I assume, uh, well, I I really thought that in 1996, the general conference was going to um, make it such that all people were included in the Methodist church. To me, this just seemed obvious. I didn't have to like slowly go through a journey of knowing whether or not I should accept queer people into ministry spaces. It just, it was there from the very beginning, coupled with this belief that we're called to love. And um, that that's just yeah. what, what it was. And you took that into the campus ministry that you would lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I was appointed to a church that grew from the, the youth ministry I led grew, and then the church I was appointed to as an associate pastor grew from 250 in worship to 800 in worship, and they grew beyond that. The campus ministry, I think I told you when I knew it was time to move on from being an associate, and Derek, I was so set up to climb the ladder. I would be making so much more money if I would have done that. Oh, the call of God on our lives at the yeah. intersection <laughs> of the appointed process. And mm. it's worth sharing this when I called the DS and I said, you know, my um, mentor in ministry is retiring from campus ministry. He's asked me to consider applying because campus ministry, as you know, it's both an appointment if you're clergy and and an application process. Those two worlds collide. And uh, I called the DS and he said, I do not think you're supposed to do campus ministry, but we'll, but let's pray about it. Can you believe that? A DS said. <laughs> I, I actually can believe it, but it's always good to hear it. You love to hear yeah. it. You love to see it. Yeah. The DS says, Let's pray about this appointed process. <laughs> yes. And so, and he didn't tell anyone else, didn't tell the bishop, just said, you and I, let's pray about it. Two weeks later, we had an appointment to talk on the phone. And we both had come, we both thought no. And then we came to a conclusion two weeks later that it was a yes. And we were both very surprised that that's where the spirit had nudged both of us. So, and so you get into campus ministry, you, you do the thing. I do the thing. Do. That's how I meet all, all of you amazing Southern boys. That, because, that is, yes. 
I didn't know how to do the thing. I didn't, I didn't, this campus ministry, like most mainline campus ministries had dwindled down to a few students and um, who were amazing students. But I started, there were eight, eight students and $44 in the checkbook. And I thought, huh, I don't know how to do this. And someone said, call Bob Beckwith. And I was like, okay. So I call him. I And he, for those of you that don't know, he leads the largest United Methodist campus ministry. And he's been very effective at that. He's been there for decades. Um, I didn't know that I was supposed to be intimidated to call him. I just call him and say, we need to talk. I need to know how to do this thing. We find out that his grandmother, which was his parents were also unchurched. And he came into faith in college, but his grandmother was act, or is it his great grandmother? Some, I think grandmother was actively involved in a small town Methodist church. It was the Arcola United Methodist Church, my hometown church. Arcola, man. And so I sent my dad to go, I said, hey, go into our little library and see if there's any indication of this woman. And my dad found a picture of her with the golden shovel digging the first, um, whatever, doing the first shovel of uh, for the new foundation for what became the education wing where I learned scripture. And it was United, Bob's grandmother. United Methodism is two degrees of separation. That's right. Every day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Our young adults think that we're magical because they're like, Jenny, I just met this person. I knew you. Like, yeah, they think I'm famous. It's like, no, it's just Methodism. It's just Methodism. It, it's <laughs> just Methodism. You, you, and and it was, it was great to meet you in the context <laughs> of campus ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you did, you do, you did the thing, and mm-hmm. you get tapped to plant a church. I did. Because you did the thing. I know. So we grow the campus ministry. By the time I leave, you know, we have fundraised. uh, We're fundraising a a chunk of change every year. And we have a a pretty, you know, fill fill the sanctuary kind of situation. And so, and many people went into ministry during that time. Very few stayed in my conference. That's part of being a progressive and a conservative conference. They're all over the country. I've recruited two dozen young adults who are now not serving in my conference. But wow, yeah. For the kingdom, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm asked to start a church from scratch. And I talked to the bishop at the time. It was Bishop Gregory Palmer. And I just say, hey, the only way I can start a church is if from the beginning in our DNA, we're LGBTQ inclusive. And we want to be open to who else God is calling us, who else is being marginalized and not included. But just from day zero, this will be our launch team. And he sort of said that he'd expect nothing less of me. My current bishop, Bishop Frank Beard, (laughs) receives a lot of complaints about me because out of my congregation came Isaac Simmons or Ms. Pentecost. And we're going to talk about that. Okay. 
Um, so there are regular complaints against me and um, Bishop Beard is more theologically conservative, but mm -hmm. what he says to the people complaining about me, because now I have a, a decent sized church that's about 60% queer. Mm -hmm. And um, he's like, what'd you guys expect? Like the conference voted for her to do a church plant. Did you expect her to fail? <laughs> like, what'd you think was going to happen, friends? My oh. goodness. That's where we are. Let's take a quick break. So much we could be talking about, and we could do this for days. <laughs> but I want to take us to February of 2019 at the special session general conference, and the traditional plan passes. And I'd love to know what the response was, particularly at Hope Church, which you planted. Mm -hmm. um, and throughout your your conference, mm -hmm. what what was the response to the traditional plan passing? Do you remember when at on February twenty sixth, sort of when it before the vote had happened, but when it became very obvious that the traditional plan was going to happen, and which mm -hmm. really was from the day before, but. We'd gone to lunch and then um, for some reason, things were moving faster than they needed to move. And um, it's like, oh my God, this is, this is about to happen. Mm -hmm. And um, Adam Hamilton gets called to the mic and he says, you have just woken centrists across the country who are not going to stand for this kind of harm. People who would have stayed nice. He used his Adam Hamilton words, but he basically said, watch out. And Derek, I didn't tell you this last time, but I remember to get to my car, I had to kind of leave the convention center. And I was walking past a room in a, in a hotel uh, right across the street. And there were a group of traditionalists in there, several of whom I recognized, high-fiving and cheering. Like, I'm sure they didn't have any beer to clink their glasses, but if they would have. Mm -hmm. And it was just so, um, it was so upsetting. And I got into the car. I only live two hours from St. Louis. Get in the car with two of my people, they're both in seminary at the time. So they were at general conference getting seminary credit. And um, we're all south in the mouth, like silent and sad. And then one of them says, this isn't us. We're not the type of people to be, to let someone else claim the narrative. Like what the heck are we doing? And we're just like, you can still see the arch in the rear view mirror. And she's like, huh, -uh, this, this is not who we are. And for my congregation who doesn't own property and hasn't chartered, it would have been pretty easy for us to say goodbye, United Methodist Church. And I, I was wondering, and then what would I do? And do I, all those questions. So she says, what if, 
we consider controlling the narrative. She's like, Jenny, I've heard you say that a hundred times. So I call my spouse who's a writer and I say, can you put together a press release for us from our perspective? Before midnight that night, we get it out to the local um, uh, news stations and um, papers and know that we're a small market. Like I'm not in Jacksonville, Florida. This is like, Peoria, Illinois is our market. So Not that Jacksonville is like a great, a big media market, but I get your point. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not in Atlanta or Chicago. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. So our email with our press release is going to be noticed more easily. That next morning, February 27th, I had cameras in my building and um, I called in some of my people and we were interviewed and um we got to say that this was upsetting to us and we were going to fight it. Mm, wow. And another thing happened that day. My phone starts ringing and I start getting texts in the conservative Southern Illinois conference. And just as Hamilton predicted, nice centrists are devastated. And by Friday, March 1st, four years ago today, my little uh, queer congregation that rents space in an old bank building had our sanctuary turned into a conference room and 50 people were there. My gosh. And they said, what are we going to do? And so that day, um, kind of at general conference, the uh, people pushing for um, the one church plan were called the unity people. And it's not that we wanted unity in the way of like silencing marginalized voices, but we just claimed the name that day, IGRC for unity and uh, bought the URL, set up a Facebook page. And that's what we've had since then. Had we breathed a half a second, it probably would have been um, IGRC next, or we would have claimed that, but that's basically what we are and just like conferences all over the country we had 10 weeks between march 1st and when our um annual conference was and we flipped mm -hmm. the delegation and so dig in a little bit more on your conversation with clergy and um because i again jenny becomes the progressive, the lone progressive in these, and obviously these are not um, individuals who are get who are um, supportive of the traditional plan, but they're not necessarily like rainbow flag waving, right? <laughs> they're not. They're nice Midwesterners, and Midwestern nice means you don't make anyone feel uncomfortable, and mm -hmm. you know you bring the cheesy potatoes and the casseroles to the funeral meal. And you and you're nice, so it's not nice to say uh, you disagree with people in your conference. And Chris Ritter, um, his church has well, not officially, because our our conference, our annual conference to make that happen will be sometime in May. But his church has voted to disaffiliate, and he is going to turn in his orders. But previous to that, he was actively involved. He's in my conference. We don't want to be mean to him. It's our person. He's from here. Why would, and certainly we don't want to cause harm either, but it's like 
we had to be that voice that being nice to people and electing them to a delegation can be two different things. Yeah. Yeah. So you do, you end up electing a delegation that at the very least um, wants to get the punitive language out of the traditional plan, probably more aspirations of your asking individuals, but um, what was annual conference like that year? It was really um, nerve wracking for me because uh, while everyone wanted this to happen, nobody wanted to be the one to do it because they didn't have the, um, they didn't have the history. Uh, Whereas the other side, Hey, here's our slate. Everyone elect them. And by the way, we'll pick up, we'll, we'll vote for the people not here as well. Like the other side had no problem running the table, but it nice people don't do that. And as one of my friends has said, we were used to playing checkers and letting it happen. Like it just happens. Trust the process. And we needed to play chess. We needed to be more strategic And so we had a meeting the night before annual conference started. And we said, we care about what all of who all of you want elected. We we did a straw poll that night. Lots of people were there, filled filled a hotel room. And then so then the next day when we were doing elections, we could when we were texting out, okay, everyone needs to vote for this person now. We could say this reflects who you invited us to vote for. Um, So it didn't feel so much like Jenny telling people because no one wanted, everyone was willing to join the WhatsApp, but no one wanted to be the one sending the text out. So guess who did that? Moi. This was your first time even putting your name forward, right? Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to be involved in the politics of the church. Mm. Um, Not that I'm not political and not that I don't see God working in those ways, it just, I already had so much on my plate and it wasn't where I felt my leadership um, being called. But then you have 50 people sitting there and the only way I could go in front of my church on that Sunday morning, which was March 3rd, 2019, we had two options only. And I'm usually a, there are a hundred options here kind of person. But that day, we either had to say we're leaving the Methodist Church or we're changing the Methodist Church. Those were the only two options for them to trust me as their spiritual leader. And um, we went for being a significant part of changing it. And, you know, there are four people who were elected in our total delegation of 20, no, 26. We get 26 total with all of everybody. And of those 26, four came from my congregation. You're talking about your congregation. And this is where I think we've got a segue to, I'm sure there, I know, because I've, I've preached virtually to your congregation that Hope Church is full of incredible people. But Isaac Simmons has a very unique story. And I'd love for people, so for those who don't, no, Isaac Simmons. Um, I don't. I don't know the right way to actually say this. Um, Isaac Simmons also uh, is Miss Pentecost. Is yeah, that the right that's way? To the say right it? way. Yeah. 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 
Um, Isaac's drag persona is Miss Pentecost. Yes. So um, tell us, tell us how you, how you met Isaac. Okay. So also in 2019, so um, that's February, March, 2019. Then um, the, let's see, no, it was in 2018. We had in Bloomington Normal, our first pride fest. And um, the owner of the gay bar called Hope Church to help make it happen. Now there's lots of people that help make it happen, but that first year it was Hope and the gay bar. And um, over the loudspeakers, they say, security provided by the pastors of Hope Church, who are two women at the time. <laughs> so Isaac is a little baby freshman, sophomore in college, and hears that and had at that point given up on church, you know, came out, rejected from family, rejected from church. And so then here's that at Pride Fest and is like, well, darn, if they're going to be there for me, I better be there for them. I didn't show up right away. Um, it, but then around Christmas time started coming Advent, sneak in the back, sneak out. Thing I don't see him. I'm a campus minister. I see all. And I. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Isn't that right? No, that's totally right. Then on Christmas Eve, Isaac is at worship. College students don't come to worship at their college church on Christmas Eve. And I'm like, hey, what you doing? I get to, I'm like back there because, you know, walk out with the candles. Isaac couldn't sneak away that day. What you doing here at church on Christmas Eve? Oh, you know, it's just, I was just thought it would be special to come. Lie, lie, lie. Okay. Then Isaac, I don't remember how close Christmas Eve and the Sunday were, but they were close enough. Isaac was at that Sunday worship too. It was like, Hey, did you go home? Like, what are you doing? You live in a dorm. Why are you here in Bloomington normal? Turns out I didn't yet know they're part of this story where they were not welcome at home. They'd gotten special permission from Illinois Wesleyan University. They were an RA and they got to stay in the dorm. They had Chinese on Christmas day by themselves in a dorm room. And I was like, um, I can tell by the fact that you are sneaking in and out that you don't want this, but you need to know from here on out, you will get more invitations to every holiday than you will ever want. And you're gonna have to say no. Because if you want to sit in your dorm and eat Chinese, great. But we'd want that to be an option that you choose, not a requirement. So um, I start paying much more attention to Isaac. So then Isaac comes in. I think I'm called to ministry. This is still young, baby Isaac, 1920. Uh, we talk. It's obvious. Isaac is called to ministry. Like the child is a genius and so just thinks theologically um, already. And, uh, but, uh, okay, so we're still having conversations. They're still young. I'm leading a Bible study and all of a sudden all these people show up. It's going to be like 50 people and I need tables because I want people at small groups, but I don't have a fellowship hall. I just have a sanctuary. So I invite Isaac, hey, I'll pay you 
whatever, 50 bucks a week. I don't know what, some token amount. Would you come in and tear down all the chairs and set up tables? And then after this Bible study is over, reset it for worship? And they said, yes, that's who Isaac is. Someone who will come in and tear down all the chairs and set them all up without getting any glory or fame or anything for that. And that's what people don't know about Isaac. And after Isaac did that, they would just see things that were needed in the church and just do them without being asked mm. on Sunday mornings. Mm. You know those people, don't you? Oh, I know those people. I'm grateful for them. Um, just natural servant leaders. Yeah. And that's I, Isaac. You have been journeying with them for years. Derek, Isaac is independent and strong and doesn't need anyone. Um, and also, oh, my mama bear, you know, like I am Isaac's friend and hope to be colleague. So I'm not saying Isaac asked me to be a mama bear or needs me there, but Isaac had told me uh, when they were in a philosophy class that they'd read about this French philosopher who was studying the impact of drag artistry in the 17th century to bring about, I believe, the French Revolution. So like some really, I, I don't even remember the names because Isaac is so smart and was making all these connections. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, did you know that sitting right over there is Sharon Cher-like? Because I already had several drag artists that came to Hope. And Isaac is like, no way, and starts fangirling. Because Sharon is not only the matriarch of the drag community in Bloomington Normal, Sharon owns a company called Boobs for Queens, which is just the prosthetics. You know, it's like the... It's like you pull back the curtain and uh, none of that body shape is real. It's all plastic. And so Sharon's business provides the prosthetics to RuPaul and has okay. for years. Okay. okay. Isaac freaks out like, oh my gosh. And then writes all these papers. And then at some point home during the pandemic like no one not doing anything decides I, I just want to see what it's like to be in drag doesn't yet know how to contour or do eyebrows or anything <laughs> but gets into drag claims this drag name miss pentecost and prays because they have this really deep and rich prayer and scripture reading life praise the rosary because they're Gen Zer and like all the spiritual practice in, intersect, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And does it on Facebook thinking like always <laughs> they would be offended by this word, but thinking like an evangelist, like I'm going to do this. And I also want to invite others into it with me. You know what right I mean? On. Yeah. Right on. So that March, which would have been March of 2020, a year after um, GC, Isaac gets certified as a candidate for ministry as an out gay man who has committed to the lifestyle statement. And um, at, at, at the DCOM, 
we didn't know it, but the IRD slash WCA had already grabbed that clip. I'm guessing because they were watching me because of what I had done. And we're prepared to send it out via all their channels. So this college student, all of a sudden inbox is filled and then my inbox is filled and it's all this hate. And, and we look at our um, website and you know how you can follow the analytics and it's like this. And then there's this huge spike. And um, then our bishop starts being called and our boom starts being called and um, DCOM is asked to change their perspective and um, meet again and not certify Isaac. And our DCOM is furious that they're being asked to do this. And they decide and have continued to decide to be on the side of justice and what's right because Isaac is called by God to ministry and we cannot stop what the Holy Spirit is doing, right? And yeah. I told you this before, um, I'm called and Isaac is called and we're asked to be silent. And we're told it from the perspective of, if you say anything, you just give the WCA and the IRD more fodder. But I... At, like, what's it feel like to be a marginalized person and asked to be silenced, Derek? I mean, it's something that we get used to. Um, those of us who fit in these marginalized categories, but it is also dehumanizing. It is mm -hmm. silencing and it is dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing about silencing that is um, of God. I don't think. And so we're silent for three days. Oh, and by the way, we're hosting in our church with no fellowship hall, remote learning for junior high and high school kids who have IEPs and are having to do their homework often or schooling often from single parent families and the parents working at home alone and they're failing. So we get a grant and open a remote learning center in our church. And that's what Isaac is doing day in and day out is helping to feed and school these students. Again, servant leader. But so this is happening. We're in the building and I just, it just hits me. We have to do a worship service that is led by drag queens. And it, it became um, a couple of kings too. So we uh, we had drag worship led by drag artists. And that's become an annual thing. But that first time we did it, oh my gosh. We both got positive and negative. And, and we've been on the of news course. multiple times now. But that's how Miss Pentecost became known. You know, Jenny... One of the things that I have appreciated in hearing your story is just the way that you see people. And I, I just reflect on, um, you know, Discipleship Ministries had a campaign that Junius Dotson um, mm -hmm. pushed uh, called See All the People. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated the heart 
behind that. I had a Zoom meeting with juniors to talk about how young people might engage it. And yeah, I miss juniors. I, I miss juniors, and I and I hope that he is um, looking down on us but also talking to Jesus about our church yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and asking Jesus to do some things. Um, mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I, I'm thinking about the stories that you told me in these two interviews. <laughs> you see, you see people, you see rural working class folks, you see Amish and Hispanic immigrants, you see college students, but you see um, these older United Methodist men who saw you and so you see them and you saw at Christmas Eve service, like one of the most important services in the year that no one would have blamed you for not seeing anybody in the room. You saw mm-hmm. Isaac. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't just celebrate that, Jenny. I admire that. I, I am. I want to lift that up mm. because, again, no theological book taught you that. This is you were raised in that, and mm. the power of being raised to see people as beloved children of God, beloved people of God, and to let them be on their journey, but to see them, oh my gosh, what a gift. So let me ask you this as we're bringing this interview that we we literally could do, we, you and I could do this, but the parts that would get edited out, y'all, that's it. Derek, I think we have done this. Oh, we, yes, we have done (laughs) What's your what is your hope as we're as we're you know getting ready for general conference uh, you know in 2024 um, continued disaffiliations uh, you know our church is gonna reorganize um, yeah. and all of that stuff is real but there are people who need to be seen and people who need to be loved and people who need to be encouraged in their call and not silenced. Um, What's your hope for the United Methodist Church? Um, Well, I, I just came from Covenant Keepers in my conference. There's, it is, it is infuriating that at age 50, I'm one of the youngest people there. Covenant Keepers, for those listening, is a required annual retreat for all of the clergy. And um, that's so disheartening to me, especially knowing all the young adults that I have mentored into ministry. Uh, And they are serving maybe, uh, I don't think I have anyone in Florida, but I have people all over the country doing amazing work Um, my conference is going to have to get more serious about seeing young adults. And, um, and then we're also as a larger United Methodist church, it's uh, the implosion as it sometimes gets called from the outside is our opportunity to do this in a different way. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's exciting to me. I mean, I'm a campus minister and a church planter. So change and messing it all up and then doing it in a new way. I thrive in that. I realize not everyone does. That's not good news for everyone, but. It's good news to some of us. And that's good. <laughs> that's good. I, I don't I don't want anyone to have to live a closeted life in order to uh, be loved by their church. Like that's just ridiculous. And if we can just get on the other side of that, where else is God calling us to be loving and inclusive? Like um, Mm -hmm. queer inclusion, that just seems like such an easy and obvious step. And we'll have so many people to serve in ministry once we say, Doors are open. Those of you, the Holy Spirit is invited. That's still key. Those who are called and um, and then equipped are open to God equipping them. Like, but once we can affirm the Holy Spirit working in all people, there's so much work to be done in the world. Right. 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 Jenny, you are an inspiration. Um you're you're, you're going to continue to see people and that's going to catalyze it already has i mean clearly like we could that's its own podcast episode um <laughs> but i just want to thank you for being you want to thank you for seeing all the people and um i'm so grateful to call you friend i feel lucky to have you in my life same so same thanks jenny we hope you enjoyed the episode bar of the conference is produced by the team at wesley's revival a ministry of studio wesley subscribe to this show on apple spotify amazon or google platforms so you don't miss a single episode thanks for joining us and see you next time